Good morning, church. Thank you. I like it when you say it back. All right, so we have um, been on a bit of a journey this summer looking into wisdom literature. We're going to continue that today. I want to start with this idea, though, that kind of what we just sang about. Uh, we, sang, we sang about God's greatness. We sing about his goodness. And, and the only right way for us to know what to do when we're talking about wisdom, the only right way for us to know what to do is, is to know him. We long to know what to do. I think everybody, especially in our culture and in our Christian culture, we just want to do right things. Everyone is desperate to do right things, but that's only possible in light of who he is and what he's done. So that's why we sing these songs. That's why we preach a gospel uh, that doesn't just change you so you can do good things, but it changes you and then enables you to do good things. And so it's a mistake to think that we can obey God without knowing him. In fact, Knowing him in his goodness and in his greatness is what makes obeying him so good. It's a joy to obey a father who you, you know loves you because he's demonstrated that love. And so often we emphasize our being, superseding our doing, but I think we need, we need to return to that again and again, especially when we're talking about the more practical things in Scripture. They're so clearly the doing. It's imperative that we see the doing flows out of, our behavior flows out of who we are. And who we are is only changed by belief in the gospel. So what do we believe? How has that changed us? And then we can begin to consider what do we do? So in that light, it's, it's an effort that we're putting into it, but it's driven by grace. So to be clear, the doing is necessary. It only happens through this, this intentional effort, but all of it's driven by grace. We have vision because of grace. We have mission because of grace, and we have motivation because of grace. And so with grateful hearts, we joyfully obey, and the doing happens. So I want to make sure that order is correct, because it can be easily flipped, and we think our doing makes us who we are. And that's a false religion. That's not Christianity. God has changed you into a new creation, and then your doing flows out of that. With right belief, your doing will be good. Does that make sense? That's a necessary thing we come back to when we talk about wisdom. Uh, So wisdom literature is a gift of God, and it's for the purpose of knowing what's right. It's so we can do what's good. It's it's not law, and it's not uh, just these moral things to follow, but it's a model set before us to assess our belief. If my life is wise, it shows I have right belief in Christ, because he changes me, and my doing flows out of that. So we've just finished Ecclesiastes, uh, which was very quick through So go back, study that, know how to come at it now. Uh, But it helps us consider the materialism, the things of this world, the things under the sun, our relationship to stuff, and how ultimately we look beyond the stuff. Ecclesiastes was great. Proverbs before that helped us consider our relationship with ourselves and our relationships with others and our our doing in all of life. These these one-liners that just get you and you're like, yeah, that's wise. That's a proverb. It's why it's called the book of Proverbs. And it's necessary to know what a godly man, a wise man looks like, a godly woman, a wise woman looks like. And that naturally leads us to where we'll be today when we consider a husband and a wife and how they know one another. And so we will be looking into the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. If you know anything about this book, you may have already got a little warm in your chest, like I feel right now, a little bit uncomfortable maybe, Um, 
but it's the Word of God. And it's hinted at. So we think of Proverbs as this practical thing, but there's actually a verse in Proverbs that Scott Bonner quotes all the time. Proverbs 5.18. It's in contrast of infidelity, so it's very much in line with what Proverbs teaches, but in contrast with infidelity, the somewhat provocative verse, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. It's poetic, and in a poetic way saying, be love drunk with your wife. Don't go digging in the trash when God has given you treasure to enjoy. Enjoy that treasure. And the Song of Solomon is kind of a a diving into this verse and looking at it played out over eight chapters of Scripture, this beautiful song written, this poetic expression of this uninhibited, mysteriously intoxicating, mushy, sappy, beautiful, God-given, erotic love as as it's freely expressed within the safe harbor of marriage. And so I can think of a lot of reasons why I I just don't want to preach this. I can think of a lot of ways this could go badly. I, 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 in thinking of how to go at this, I, I considered the struggling couples who may leave here feeling discouraged or, or the singles who are just eager and may leave here feeling bitter and impatient. I thought about the, the sensitive people who are just sensitive, protected from the ways of the world, not desensitized in healthy ways, safe from those things, being presented with some things that are, are foreign, like kids in the room. I thought about these things as I wrote through this. And, and on top of that, parents just weren't ready to have these conversations at lunch today, and here you go. <laughs> Plus the debates over interpretations of this, of this whole book are, are layered in complexity. Like brilliant men who I agree with on a lot of things disagree about this book and how it's interpreted. So all of that said, I, I think we can rest assured that the promise from God is his word does not return void. And, and the promise from God is scripture is breathed from his mouth. And out of his mouth comes these words that are profitable for us. And so I hope to be sensitive in the ways that are necessary. But I also hope that this is the safest possible place to talk about such content. And I hope that everyone in here would be encouraged that this is being discussed. Moreover, I think there's a way in which we all need, every human being, whatever level of maturity you are, needs to have our minds renewed by the Word of God as it concerns sexuality, which is an often neglected area of discipleship in the church. And so things happen, and it it goes on on in the shadows. And conversations happen, but they're always about follow-up rather than intentionality as a preventative. And so I, in, in reflecting on all of this, am encouraged to address these things in a way that's respectable but necessary. And so, sorry, I just accidentally started a song on my phone. It was awkward. Um, so we're going to get into it, and we're going to do so in a way that would bring honor to God. And of course, if you walk out of the room, that's understandable. John's walking out, so he's leading the way. So let's go to God and let's ask him for some grace and some clarity in this. Lord, I, I know that this is your word. 
I know that you are faithful in all things. And so I pray that this morning you would open our ears and our hearts to receive truth that would be edifying and encouraging. Lord, I pray for every married couple who would hear this sermon. God, I ask that you bless our marriages with, uh, with joy, with love, with fun, that we would cherish one another in these ways. God, I pray for delight as we consider how much you love us. God, help us. In Jesus' name. All right. The Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. It's called the Song of Songs because like King of Kings or Holy of Holies, it is the best of that kind. So it is the best possible song. And we, we can believe this because it's the Word of God. It's divinely inspired, and it's a love song. We love love songs, right? So a, a divinely inspired love song has to be the greatest possible love song. And it, by its design, I believe it's, encouraged, it's encouragement for us to be patient, for us to have freedom from shame. Uh, it's also meant to whet the appetite for pleasure and point us ultimately to the one who satisfies that longing, Jesus. It's beautiful. It's beautiful in its arrangement, in its lyricism. I'm sure the music that went along with it was excellent. In fact, the best of its kind. It's a celebration of intimate love between a husband and a wife. And so when we read it, we don't read it as an allegory. We don't read it as a narrative. We don't read it as a manual. We read it as a song because that's what it is. It's an artistic expression of love. It's powerfully and and vividly rich with imagery. And it's it's presenting us with this, this idea of what physical intimacy looks like according to the Word of God. It's meant to be enjoyed by God's design within covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual relationship. A covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual relationship, that is always what God means when he talks about marriage. And, it, and it's certainly countercultural, not just in our culture, but across history. It's been countercultural for marriage to be defined in this way, but marriage defined in any other way is anti-biblical, and it will inevitably destroy individuals and destroy society. And we've seen that play out in history we just, we just selectively are blind to certain things in human history. But God knows what we need, and he gives it to us. And even if other things feel right, we can know they're wrong by the conviction of the Spirit. So this book of wisdom leads us in these practical ways, but it's also a song, a much-needed model for passion within marriage. Within the grand narrative of things, we see this as something like all Scripture. It points to Jesus. So it's a shadow of something far greater. It's a shadow of love and intense intimacy that's, that is far greater and to come. And that the life we'll have with Christ in eternity will be filled with a love unimaginable. And we get glimpses of that in this world. And marriage demonstrates that beautifully. So if we're able to understand the wisdom in this song, which I hope we are, though not many scholars have come to an agreement on a lot of things, I hope we're able to understand it at least to the point where we can see God desires what's best for us, and what's best for us is understanding our relationship with Him. Now, it's important to point out the contrast. So within Christian culture, the standing in contrast with these ideas are this, un, this unspoken philosophy of asceticism or this, this, uh, this understanding that any sort of pleasure is wrong. And so I have to deprive myself and that makes me more holy. There's this, 
This is religion. This idea that I need to strip away the enjoyable things in order to be more holy is not God's design. His design is understand where those things belong and enjoy them to their fullest in the right context. So when we talk about sexual sins that are destroying people and the fear of that sin keeps us from enjoying the pleasure God intended for us to enjoy, that's a problem. It's not holy. And then, of course, there's also these pervasive perversions of sexuality in every way it comes. And and in the church, we hide those things in the shadows and people are buried underneath shame. And my hope is we would be liberated in both cases to see what's true in in the word of God. We are easily ensnared by lies and shame and fear, and it robs us of joy. So I don't know how you approach this this morning or how you're feeling right now in this moment, but I want to press you to lean into this to seek to understand what God intended and to find the greater freedoms that are there for us to enjoy. Not just so you can have pleasure, but so God can be worshipped, so God can be glorified, because that's why he gave us this song. We are easily caught up in the things that are contrary to truth. So we have to intentionally work towards the freedom available in the truth. Our, our enemy, maybe the easiest way to think of this, our enemy hates songs of freedom. And this is a song of freedom. So let's sing it. Now we are, we're only going to be in this book for two weeks, so there's not nearly enough time to really dive into all the complexities. So I'm going to give you today this this way of approaching it. I want to give you some structure. I want to highlight a few things. I want to give you an idea of what the characters are doing and and why that's significant. But my hope is that you would take this and you would not avoid this book. I think think we're remiss to skip over this book because we're confused about it or we're unsure about it or we're uncomfortable with it. Uh, So take whatever you gain here today and apply that in your own personal study. Start Bible studies. Study it with your spouse. However you want to go about it, I encourage it. Always explore it. It's deep. Explore the depths. Um, so, so first, structure. It's a song. There's not a lot of uh, ways to follow it in a way that seems right because we don't understand the music or the, or the patterns or the, the rhyme scheme or any of that because we've brought it into our context, changed the language to our language, uh, and then tried to make it a story in so many ways. A lot of Western thinking is linear, chronological. We want a story out of it. I don't know that it so clearly fits that model. And so I want to say don't force it to fit a narrative. But you can see the structure kind of in means of a courtship in the first few chapters. You can see it as a wedding in the the fourth and fifth chapter. There's like this bit of a a lover's quarrel. They get in this argument. They're separated. And then there's this longing for reuniting. And there's reconciliation, a maturing in marriage. Some scholars think that this is over decades of time. And you can see some clear marks of maturity If you just look at chapters 4 and chapter 7, where the groom is describing his bride, it's two different ways of doing so. So some think that's a more more mature man within marriage. Some think the young one was just ready to have his bride. And so there's some very distinct things that are different there. I don't know about all that. What's most clear to me is there's this this growing of affection that's there. There's this appreciation. There's this affirmation. These desires for one another are expressed. And so I'm most comfortable just thinking of it as several poems pieced together to form this song or an album of love songs, if you will. And it kind of tells the story, but who the characters are and all of that aren't as relevant as the meaning. But speaking of who the characters are, the very first verse, it says, Song of Songs, which is 
Solomon. So we're met with this uh, kind of necessity to figure out what does Solomon have to do with this. Now, I'm not convinced he wrote it. I'm not convinced he's in it. But a lot of people are. So if you want to go there, you can. Some ways you can make that work. I have hesitancy because of what we know about Solomon, right? The dude had 300 concubines, 700 wives. And most of those wives were political moves. He was trying to build relationships with other nations. So there, was, there wasn't even this loving intimacy, especially in the depths that we see in the song. So to think he wrote it or to think that's him in it, I have some hesitancy there. But it's not just that. There's also some contextual things. Uh, the way they describe him as a king and also a shepherd doesn't fit who he is. They, they describe him in poverty or he's described in riches. I just think we need not read too much into the imagery and force things. So I'm just not about forcing it. It can work, but I don't think we have to force it into a narrative that doesn't belong because then we miss some of what should be there. So many scholars agree that what's most consistent is the mentioning of Solomon is indicative of where this book belongs in the, in the wisdom literature because Solomon was the wisest man. So it points to him in order to make sure it's known this is wisdom from God, but also it's a song of songs. If it was written in his time, it belongs to him. So of all of Solomon's songs, and he himself wrote like a, I think First Kings says he wrote right over a thousand songs, a thousand and five, I want to say, I don't know, look it up. He wrote over a thousand songs. So of all the songs of Solomon, this song is the song of songs. That's the emphasis we want to take from the first verse. But also Solomon in, in his riches and in his glory as a king certainly stands as a bit of imagery for the poem. So references to him are royal images. And, and, it's, this act, and it's actually a very ordinary thing, a husband and wife getting married, but they're, they're making much of it. It's a royal wedding. Even in today's context, royal weddings are a big deal. Like they monopolize the news. Who cares if there's wars going on? There's a royal wedding. Let's give all the, I didn't even do any research on royal weddings and somehow I know all about them. So you would imagine that this farm girl and this farm boy are like thinking of let's, let's love each other and let's dream big. So references to Solomon draw out this, this royal imagery that's necessary in the poem. So it doesn't have to be Solomon, but Certainly it can be. It's not out of the question. Whatever the case, all this focus on who this guy is, I think, is unnecessary because the emphasis in this song is clearly the woman. Her voice is heard more than the man's voice. Her voice doesn't just speak to the man. Like, his only speaks to her. Her voice speaks to the city, to him, and then sometimes just to herself. She's just singing. The voice of the woman dominates this, the Shulamite woman. The Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament actually goes Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon. So we have Proverbs ending in Proverbs 31, which is the description of this ideal woman, into Ruth, which is this picture of a real woman who was all these virtuous things, and then her relationship with Boaz, and then that into Song of Solomon, the very natural way it flows to point us to continue to consider the woman. So I would say we need to focus more on the words of the woman, though certainly all the words are important. And her voice and how it interacts with her groom is significant. As we read some of these passages, do your best to consider the imagery. It's not an allegory, but think about who we are as the bride of Christ. Think about who Jesus is as our groom. Certainly, since all things point to Jesus, there's a reason for that. To give you an example of what this woman sees of herself, we see verse 6 of chapter 1. 
She says, do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. This, this sort of, I'm, I've been weathered by the sun, this modesty. She's presenting herself kind of hesitant, hesitantly. Don't look at me. I've been marked by the sun. I've, I've been weathered in the hard work because she works as a shepherdess. But though she sees herself that way, through the eyes of the one who loves her, she is magnificent. According to him, there's nothing on earth more satisfying to his senses than this woman. He is describing her body and celebrating its beauty piece by piece throughout this poetry. And she says of her husband in chapter 2, verse 4, he looked on me with love. A more literal translation is his banner over me is love. This military imagery. I belong to him. I, what, what battle are you fighting and what army are you with? I belong to him. His banner over me is love and love is the context for their intimacy. So knowing his love then gives her confidence. And we know that because she's the one who initiates. She's the one who pursues something way out of character for a woman in this cultural climate. She is frequently expressing her desire for him. And she's, she's overcoming internal and external barriers to get to him. We see that in chapter 3 and in chapter 5. She longs for him and she goes after him, even after they have this bit of an awkward exchange where there were some unmet expectations and he leaves and she, she's like, it's almost like Shakespeare. She's like, oh, my lover, where has he gone? And she goes out into the streets searching for him. It's beautiful how she pursues him. This woman enjoys the presence of her man. Let's read some of these passages. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, she says, I delight to sit in his shade. After calling him a tree, she says, I, like, I delight sitting in his shade and, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. And her husband is equally intoxicated. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, you are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. So it may seem like hyperbole, but consider if you're a husband and wife, some of the things that you say when you're in private in your bedroom that you would never want recorded for everyone in the rest of history to read. That's what's going on here. It's not necessarily hyperbole. They're just infatuated. They're intoxicated. They're expressing what they truly feel in this moment. And it, it starts off, the whole song starts off with this sort of intensity. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, she says, Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. That's how it starts. That's like Lion King, Circle of Life, and you're like, after it's over, you're like, that's how the movie began? That was amazing. What can they do now? This is how this, this song starts this way. She longs to be with her king. Take me to your chambers. She longs to be in his presence. This woman models for us this passion for her lover, a fascination with who he is and a hunger for more of him. Throughout the song, she's shamelessly desperate for his love. From the beginning to the end, in fact, in the end, in chapter 8, we see her love has matured and she's gone on to, with season and, and the transitions of life and the distance that makes the heart grow fonder and the reuniting, the, the companionship. All of these things continue to grow throughout their life. It's, it's, 
beautiful once you see past some of the very strange imagery that's in the midst of it. And when the man speaks, it's often of admiration and affirmation. For example, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. So there you go, fellas. Tell your woman she looks like a horse. It's biblical. You look like a horse. There's obviously more to it than that. There's this, there's this mare, a Pharaoh's mare. So I read one commentary and he was like, it's interesting how men have always found vehicles sexy. Like we want to compare them to women all the time, even when it was a horse and a chariot. But Pharaoh's horse, it's going to be the best of all of them. It's going to look the best. It's going to be the strongest. It's going to be in the most important position. Everyone's going to look at it. So there's significance. And it's not just any horse. It's Pharaoh's horse. And the woman also, she affirms her man and she invites him and she surrenders herself to him. And we see an example of that after he goes through this first description of her in chapter four. She says, awaken north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. It's suggestive to say the least, but she desires the atmosphere to be right. She wants the smells to be right. She wants to the taste to be right. She wants this to be all that it can be. So there's a lot of explicit and very suggestive language throughout it, but it's a celebration of sexual intimacy at its finest. It's almost, it's almost telling a story of, of lovers who mature in their love, but it's not quite telling a story. So like I said, let's not read too much into it being a narrative, because when we read it like that, we'll try to force the story to work. We'll look for plot holes like we do, and that's, that'll distract us from what's truly there. Instead, Think of it like a song. Try and feel the rhythms of it. Try to understand the poetry. The repetition of things are clear. The seeking and the finding. The longing and the being satisfied. The adoration and the affirmations and the celebrations that are so clear. Historically, in fact, until the 19th century, which wasn't that long ago, historically it has been interpreted the majority of scholars believed it was an allegory, and they would take every single symbol and try to make it mean something. I believe, in large part, that was due to the fact that this is a, an Eastern erotic love poem that Western monks and priests who have never been intimate with a woman were trying to interpret. And that's a lot of layers of complexity. But some of it's so forced, like, like some, of the, some of the commentaries would say, Okay, the two breasts were like the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's no way they're actually talking about breasts, so it must be those things. And, or it was, it was Moses and Aaron or something like that. I was just, where are you getting these things? It's just two, two things, so let's choose two things in Scripture, and it's those things. And it's a stretch, and then it detracts from truth. So God put these words in this text for us to hear. And many would encourage young people to avoid reading this book. And in fact, one, one said, I encourage you to read and it listed out the Proverbs and then devote them to memory. And then it listed out New Testament books, devote them to memory. And then some of the difficult passages work through those things. And then after doing all of those things, read Song of Solomon. But it was as if they were saying, I got to load your life up with stuff so you never get to this. Like that's the kind of way, the tone of it. And I would say we don't need to fear the word of God. We need to trust the Holy Spirit and encourage the conversations to have these things in healthy ways. Let me tell you, not too far removed from adolescence, children are learning about these things from somewhere. My son, who doesn't go to public school yet, or 
He's not around a lot of people outside of our supervision. Somehow knows some things. I don't know where he got it. I don't know what they're talking about on Curious George. I need to watch this a little closer. But I want him to learn these things from me, from the, from the Word of God. And my hope is that everyone would desire those same things. So even when it gets kind of awkward, I don't think we can force this to be an allegory, just to make it easier. Because we'll get lost in the minutia of trying to figure out all the symbols and signs and miss the message. Some of the language doesn't land for us, but we can work through what exactly it means. For example, we may get eyes that are like pools or honey under your tongue. Those things could still work in our context, but your nose is like a tower or your hair is like goats or your belly is like a heap of wheat. I just don't think you should try those. It's not going to work out. Obviously, it's not meant to be literal, right? I actually saw some people try to draw a literal version of a human being based on these things. It's ugly. It does not look right. Goats running down on the shoulder. I won't get into too much of it. It was weird. So pomegranates are involved. Okay. <clears throat> it's not to be taken literally, but we can think of it more like tasting notes, like wine or coffee or whiskey or just tasting notes. Like, it doesn't taste like that thing, but it reminds me of that thing. I feel like that thing. So when we read poetry, it's much like that. That, what What does this make you think of? So to them, apparently, a nose of tower had significance. In fact, it was the tower that pointed towards Lebanon. So I'm sure there was greater significance. Or a belly that's a heap of wheat shows health, you know, riches. And maybe it's a good color. I don't know. There's something beyond that. So don't get caught up in trying to figure out everything. See it as it is and understand there's beauty behind it. These individuals are infatuated. They're intoxicated. They're obsessed with one another. There's a lot, of more, a lot more weird analogies throughout it because it's loaded with metaphors. And I would, I would submit that metaphors are the most beautiful part of poetry. It's actually key to good poetry. There's metaphors of royalty and family and nature and space and time and military all within these eight chapters. It's the most densely packed imagery in all of Scripture. But the metaphors have purpose. They're pointing us to consider some things. A metaphor in general is these, if you don't know, these unrelated things that somehow are tied together that encourage the reader to then think deeply. So it's not just reading it and you get it, but you have to pause and you have to meditate. You have to consider. You have to see the dissonance and how they come together. You have to consider the ways they're not alike. And it brings you deeper into something. It's daring the reader to consider. It's daring us to, to reflect. And when we dive in, we can feel the emotions. We can understand the complexities. We're exploring the rhythms of the song when you reflect on the metaphors. That's why it works. It's art in words. Somehow this song celebrates physical touch, the exhilaration of an intoxicating sense. It's, it celebrates the sweetness of an intimate voice, the taste of a lover's body. These are all five senses in words, in the Word of God. What's better is 
is the way they're, they're describing love isn't just a poetic song, but it's a collection of songs, not meant for just this one couple in time, but several couples, all of God's people within, within this body belonging to Christ can experience the joys that are listed out here. It's clear it's not just about procreation. And we shouldn't dissect every little thing about it like it's the law or an epistle and try to figure it out. But we're meant to enjoy it as a whole. A full album of love songs. Pick your favorite band and their best love songs. This is a 90s R&B collection. Like This is everything good about being with your wife or your husband. But it's also wisdom. It's a model for us to know what it looks like to adore. To know what it looks like to be obsessed and satisfied. It's pointing to something beyond anything we could find on earth, but certainly it's pointing to what you find in your spouse, a desire and a delight, an exploration of love and intimacy. These lovers desire to know every detail of their partner and celebrate it. It's, it's certainly an erotic poem, but it's not cheap or sleazy. These Greek words, if we're looking at Septuagint, the Old Testament was written in Greek for this. The Greek words Erotic and porneia are different words. One is sexual immorality, where we get the word pornography. And one is a good physical love. The Hebrew word dod that's used in this book is a, is a word that means a love that is a mingling of souls. It's an intimacy that you only have with one other person. There's depth to it. It's beyond what we capture in our word, I love you, pizza. I love you, donuts. Most of mine are food related. It it should be obvious, but I'll point it out anyway. The quality of intimacy does not make the love good. It's the quality of love that makes the intimacy good. I'll say it again. It's not that the quality of intimacy makes your love good. It's the quality of that love that makes the intimacy good so good. So don't go searching for better pleasures as if you're going to find greater love there. You're getting it backwards. God's designed it this way for us to fully enjoy it, and it's only at its best when the love is good. The imagery presented in this song is, is not an inordinate fixation on body parts. So we can approach it with a carnal mind and miss the richness. We, we have this model of delighting in the human body as a whole. Put To put it another way, it captures or we're called to be enraptured in enjoying all of someone, soul and body. And it cannot cannot come if you approach this with this, this Western carnal, I can't be close to that because it makes me uncomfortable mindset. Because we see some very explicit things. So just to name a few, in chapters four and seven, we get the most vivid descriptions of the wife's breasts, her hips, her naked belly, and it leaves no question what he's talking about. It's explicit. But we also have these very implicit and suggestive things. Well, let me read one. I'll read one passage that's kind of explicit because it's beautiful. It's not, come on, it's not that bad. Until the day breaks, this is chapter 4, verse 6. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. This follows him describing her body. Until the day breaks. This is all through the night I'll make love to you like you want me to. I'll hold you tight. 
baby, all through the night. This is boys to men. I never thought I would quote boys to men in a sermon. This is boys to men in the Bible. All through the night until the day breaks, I'm going to explore you. So there it is. And then there's a lot of implicit things like the allure of her garden in chapter 4. It's locked up only for his enjoyment. The blossoming of her orchard, whatever that means. The model isn't just to enjoy, but also to affirm. So husbands and wives, take this valuable note. Affirm your spouse. Find the good things, point them out, celebrate them. He calls her my most beautiful woman in chapter 1, verse 8. He repeatedly expresses his appreciation for her. You have captured my heart with your glance. Likewise, the wife affirms her husband. Your caresses are more delightful than wine in chapter 1. My love is fit and strong. Notable among 10,000 in chapter 5. She's saying he's strong. Give me 10,000 men. My love will be noticeable because he is fit and strong. He stands out. They're, They're celebrating the good things. It's not to say you have to be a poet. Husbands, don't worry. You don't have to figure out how to do poetry. But you need to be able to see the good things in marriage and affirm them. Wives, you need to see your husband is needing your affirmation. So dote on one another. Flirt with each other. Admire each other. Celebrate one another. It's honoring to God. And single people, you're not left out of this. And you help demonstrate the breadth of God's love and how you enjoy relationships within this family. We celebrate relationships within this family. And there's depth to the love that God has intended for marriage, but even if you're single for life, there's breath that we need to have in the church. We need a healthy understanding of relationships beyond the ways our world has distorted them and made sex this idol to be sought after at all costs. It destroys people. And we need to see faithfulness that abstains. Both are valuable. Now we have this song in Scripture that we can't overlook, but I also want to consider our culture. It in, the song includes some associated pains. Love is demonstrated in this, this, the thrill and the power of love, but also in its destruction when we see some things go wrong in the middle of it. And there's, it's clear to see it in our culture. We have this disorientation of sexuality. We have, we have sexual abuse. We have pornography. We have a shaming that exists with, even within church culture. We call it the purity culture. Like you have to be modest and pure, otherwise you're, otherwise you're ashamed. If you fail in any aspect of sexual purity, shame on you. Without saying those words, we put people in that space. And I've seen, I've seen youth students and college students come one after another, ashamed of the ways they fail, ashamed of their addictions and their secrets, buried underneath it, and that is from the church because of a very flawed and broken way we see sexuality in the Word of God. All of this, a distortion of God's design, making sex ultimate, an idol to be worshipped, and sexuality is a major aspect of the human experience, so we can't act like it's not there. God in his infinite wisdom speaks to it through poetry, through a song. He celebrates it. He has also warned us of its power. He's interested in us as a whole human being, body and soul. He's not just after your soul. He wants all of you. So so don't give your body to idols. 
Sexual sin enslaves people. It's, it's perhaps the most, most damning thing in, in our life experience. It, it's the most binding thing. It's the strongest of the chains. Because we don't talk about it. And there's liberation here in the Word of God. There's freedom for us to enjoy holistically. To be free from these things. So have the conversations. Husband, wives, if, if there are struggles in the intimacies in your life, talk about it. There are, there are wise men and women who you can talk with and there will not be shame in those conversations. I can't speak for everyone, but there are experts in these areas desi- desiring what I'm expressing to you. They want you to experience the freedoms of this. It's not a shameful thing. And those who struggle with, with the repercussions of abuse, whether you are a victim or or a perpetrator, there's freedom there for you as well. There's liberation in rightly understanding what God's design is. The truth will set you free. In the final chapter, we see an emphasis on the power of love. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, it says, this is probably one of the most well-known passages from the whole song. For love is as strong as death. A shield. Jealousy is as unrelenting as unrelenting as shield. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. Love is powerful, love is valuable. Death itself is not as strong as love. We see that theme played out in, mu- in movies, right? It's true love that awakens things. It's true love that reverses the curse. It's a theme because it's a reality beyond what we see physically. There's a spiritual reality where love liberates, where love brings life. And it burns with intensity. It's mighty. A mighty river cannot put it out. All a person possesses cannot equal the value of it. So there's a very big distinction in having a fire in your fireplace and having a fire in your living room floor. One devastates and destroys. The other brings warmth and comfort, and it's good. That is God's design for this sort of love. Taken out of the right context, it destroys because it's powerful and nothing can stop it. You can't stop it. It will destroy you. It has destroyed many men and women throughout history. Men and women of God, pastors with PhDs in theology have been destroyed by sexual desire because it's removed from the context in which God designed it to be fully enjoyed in all of its intensity. And that's why this book is so intense. This love is holy and it's truly transcendent, but it's not fully understood. We can't even explain it. We have to use metaphors. We have to use imagery that falls short because we can't fully understand its depths. It's beautiful. It's intense. But it's also dangerous. We long to be known. Every human being who's ever lived longs to be known. But we fear it. We long to know someone in this way, but we fear it. And that's a gift of God pointing to something bigger. And beyond this world, you're never going to satisfy it. The passion can be intense, but it can also be 
devastating. That's clear in this book. Also clear is a reason to be patient. Repeated as kind of like a refrain throughout the song in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 8. We see, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This is warning to those who know its power, given to those who have yet to know it. Wait. It's worth waiting for. Do not awaken it before its appropriate time, because if you do, it destroys. In a worldly sexuality, love and beauty are merely disposable means to an end. In Scripture, we see it differently. It's not this immaturity and self-centeredness that destroys us. It's a song that celebrates and facilitates the worship of the Creator, the giver of all good things. One whose love is far greater than anything we have here. C.S. Lewis says, if our deepest desires cannot be satisfied in this world, then it must be that we've been made for another world. These desires you have, these cravings, these hungers will never be satisfied, though they can be enjoyed in the right context. And that is on purpose. You were designed for something greater. And that's, that brings us to this ultimate conclusion that though it's not an allegory, it certainly points to something greater. Like all things in Scripture, it points to this gospel narrative. It's no accident throughout this song there is this imagery of a garden where this gospel narrative starts is a man and his wife naked and unashamed in a garden. Adam and Eve were meant for each other. They were meant to celebrate one another. Be fruitful and multiply was their command. Enjoy creation. Have dominion over it without insecurity, without shame, and in full delight have one another. Adam longed for Eve before she was even an idea. He didn't even know something like her could exist. He just knew he was missing her. God was superior and all of creation was inferior and there was no one to be his equal. And God said, this isn't right. After creating all things that were good, he said, this is not good. So he took from Adam's side a rib and made Eve his equal. And they were united in a song. He celebrated her. Look what I have. And that's the celebration we see throughout Scripture when we consider the groom coming after his bride again and again. Though we are failures and we, are, we lack faithfulness in every category, we see Israel running from God again and again and he comes after her. We see this picture in Hosea of this man of God sent after his bride who keeps giving herself to prostitution and he continues to go after her again and again. These real things meant to be understood literally. These are actual people. These things actually happen, but they point to something far greater. It's almost as if the love of a groom for his bride could reverse the curse of the fall. It's almost if the sins and the distortion and the perversion of all these beautiful things could be brought back to the garden when we read Song of Solomon. It's almost as if it's as it should have been. But it's not. It's not quite. It's not yet. Because there is a groom coming for his bride that once and for all solves all of this. Following the ways of this world, we are sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath. We desire and hunger to feed ourselves like a newborn child. All we think about is feed me, feed me, change my diaper. That's all we care about. Yet God comes after us. He doesn't see these imperfections. He sees what should have been. And he has the power to make it right 
and he does it. He steps in and he does it. His love is so great. Our groom, God himself, stepped down from his throne and took on flesh and humbled himself and became a man, not just any man, but a servant to us. Though he was superior, he put himself beneath us to the point that he would give up his life on a cross. He would bear the sin and become the shame so that we could find liberation from the shame that condemns us, from the sin that has entangled us. We have freedom because of the work of Christ, our groom coming after his bride. So if you're a dude in here and you're struggling to see yourself as a bride, give up on that. Fall into it. You need him to rescue you. Besides, women have to see themselves as sons all through Scripture, so get over it. We are the bride. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes this abundantly clear. He gives us chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. He explains this imagery of Christ is the groom. We are the bride. And then he says, just to be clear in verse 32, this mystery is profound. The mystery of it all is profound. But I want to make it clear. I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's as if he's reminding us, I want you to understand marriage. It's important to understand marriage. It's like Song of Solomon saying, I want you to understand sexual intimacy. I want you to get it. I want you to see all the beauty and the intensity and the power. But let me make sure you understand I'm talking about Jesus because he's far greater than anything you could find here. So work hard at your marriage. Love one another. Affirm one another. Enjoy. Delight in one another. But we're not talking about this. There's something beyond this that we have to look forward to. There's a greater hope. Let's be reminded that though this song is beautiful in every way, it's pointing us to our Savior. So church, bride of Christ, do you enjoy Jesus? Do you delight in Him? Do you find yourself liberated by him? Do you desire to just be in his presence? Do you hunger for him? Do you want to taste his goodness? Do you want to feel him holding you? Do you love your Savior? Do you see him as the best option, greater than all things before you in this earth? As the bride of Christ, do we long for our groom? to be known by Him, to know Him. As the, as the woman in this song, do we go out into the city and proclaim His goodness to anyone who will hear us? Do we boast about the goodness of our God? Do we sing of His greatness? Do we want everyone to come and see how good He is? That this body would grow, not just the crossing church, but the kingdom of God because we believe Jesus is better than anything else. Do we believe that? If we do, then very naturally, we will obey. Very naturally, we will celebrate. Very naturally, our doing will flow out of who we are and what we believe. Marriage set before us is this imagery throughout the text from the Garden of Eden to Revelation in chapter 19 through 22, the very end of the book. We see this imagery. Finally, the bride is ready. There's been this long work. This already not yet gospel is finally done. The wedding has begun. The groom is coming into our space to take us in, to consummate this once and for all. The union will be complete. We will be made whole. The brokenness will be reversed. The the abused will feel liberated and free. The shamed will feel their shame leave once and for all. will be liberated from the effects of sin. 
You may find it unbelievable that Jesus delights in you, but he does. He sees you as the already completed work. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our king doesn't stop coming after us. He will finish this work. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Our hearts will be made whole. We'll be healed. And we'll be wearing his righteousness for eternity. We'll feast at his table. The celebration will go on forever. The delighting in our Lord will go on forever. The greatest sense of satisfaction we could ever imagine is found within the confines of marriage and a sexual union between a husband and wife. This will far exceed that for eternity with a joy that continues to increase forever. And in the contrast, the wrath of God will pour out on sinners, all those not welcome to this feast for eternity in a pain and a suffering, a dying but never dead forever. This is our God, both righteous and just and good and loving. And he's invited you in, bride of Christ, to enjoy him. So be encouraged. Enjoy the gifts of God. Be filled with hope. The best has yet to come. He's celebrating the good of the crossing church. Be encouraged by that. Jesus sees the good and he celebrates it as a groom celebrates his bride in all her goodness. He's delighting in the faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. And he's calling us to greater things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the grace to work through the complexities of this. I know there's so much still to be uncovered about this book. I pray that you would help us to navigate it rightly, to explore it with integrity and and with right minds. God, make your word all that it should be, a life-giving, a a deep dive, something that looks beyond the surface. God, let it read us as we read through it. But Lord, right now, as we've heard your gospel proclaimed, I pray for the souls in this room. God, save the lost. Sanctify your saints. Bring us more and more into this kingdom. Refine us. Conform us to the image of Christ. And be celebrated as we sing, as we take communion, as we give of ourselves, of our offerings. God, be enjoyed in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.